Hi, friends. I hope that you are surviving the chaos of the holiday season. (laughs) If you are looking to give the gift of creativity or self-care to a woman in your life, including yourself, I am having an end-of-the-year sale now through January 1st on my retreats, my writer workout membership, and my one-on-one coaching. In terms of retreats, I have three retreats coming up in the next few months. I have a clarity journaling retreat in Florida on the Emerald Coast near where I currently live. And it's going to be a weekend at the end of February for getting really clear in your journal about the way you want to live, being intentional. There will be meditation, yoga nidra, beach walks, time in the heated pool. It'll be great. And then I'm leading a women's writing intensive retreat in California at the Bishop's Ranch in Heedsburg, California, in wine country. April 20th through 23rd. And then I'm leading another women's writing intensive retreat in Door County, Wisconsin at the beginning of June. And so for my sale, now through January 1st, you can get $150 off using the code retreat at checkout. In terms of the other two offerings, my Writer Workout membership, that is my beloved community. We meet on Zoom every Monday to do some writing together. I give craft talks and prompts, and no matter your level, your genre, you are welcome in that group. We have women writers from all over the world, and we meet at noon central on Zoom every Monday to write together, and then there's optional sharing at the end. That is just the most supportive community. So I'm offering a sale on the annual membership. And then finally, every four months or so, I offer one-on-one coaching to a handful of writers. And this is for writers who want to get really serious about their projects and achieve their writing goals and need a coach and some accountability and some really good feedback and some customized one-on-one quality time every month. And that one-on-one coaching program also includes being able to meet for group goal-setting sessions a couple times within that four-month span. And it is just awesome to see the women who do that and are getting their books published and getting their essays out in the world. It's really, really rewarding. So I'm offering a sale on that as well. You can find out everything on my website, NadineKennyJohnstone.com. So I am about to share with you one of my favorite podcast interviews. I had the great honor of being a guest on Jasmine and Casey's First Words podcast. I loved this conversation. It got so honest and so real and so vulnerable in the most delightful of ways because they ask great questions and they're amazing hosts. And I cried multiple times, (laughs) happy and vulnerable tears. So here is my conversation with Jasmine and Casey. 
You're listening to First Words, a podcast where creativity, career, and kids collide. We're your hosts, Jasmine Aluma. And I'm Casey Gates Fry. Nadine Kenny Johnstone is a memoirist, podcaster, and writing coach. In 2017, she published her memoir, Of This Much I'm Sure, which shares her harrowing and life-threatening experience with infertility. Nadine taught at Loyola University before moving her unique writing courses online. Her work has been featured in Cosmo, The Moth, Pink, and many more. She hosts her own podcast called Heart of the Story. I met Nadine in 2019 when I enrolled in her Story Studio course, Memoir in a Year. I learned so much from her about planning, organizing, and publishing my writing that I continue to take her classes and workshops whenever possible. Nadine is the mother of a nine-year-old son. You had a pretty challenging journey with IVF before having your son. And so for the listeners who don't know your story, I was wondering if you could share a bit about that experience and how you arrived to having your son. So um, we knew from our medical history and tests that we had done that we would have a difficult time having a child. On paper, it looked like it would be nearly impossible. And so about a year after we got married, we pursued IVF help and um, we had a rough go of it, uh, which is not always the case because I've had many friends who uh, it was very successful very quickly but that wasn't the case for us. I went in for an egg retrieval procedure, which is quick and outpatient. And basically they're supposed to retrieve the eggs and then they'll fertilize them. And then later on, a couple of days later, you'll go in. And then the idea is that they'll take the fertilized embryo and hopefully they'll implant and then fingers crossed, you'll become pregnant. But the egg retrieval procedure, when I left the facility, I was not feeling well at all. And I started having some very strange symptoms and my shoulders started hurting a lot. Like I had almost like gas bubble pain in my shoulders and then my stomach was cramping and I just felt very, very ill. And I'll spare them all of the other details, but my husband looked very concerned and I just didn't know if this was normal, but he called the nurse on call. And when she heard what the symptoms were, she knew immediately that I had internal bleeding. And so I had to be rushed to the emergency room where they did an ultrasound and realized that I had lost a third of my blood and it was in my abdomen. And they quickly, very quickly realized that I needed life-saving surgery to stop the bleeding. First, find the source of the bleeding. Secondly, stop the bleeding and, and save my life. And so as all of this is happening in the ER, um, I said, you know, what about getting pregnant? And the surgeon said, we may have to perform a hysterectomy. We don't know what we're going to find. We may need to remove some of your reproductive organs, depending on the severity. Our only priority right now is saving your life. And then he whisked me away. And my husband was completely distraught and didn't know what to do. 
And I just remember waving to him as the door closed, as they were bringing me to the ER and hoping that I would see him again, like that within a span of a couple of hours, like things went just so quickly from one direction to the next. And when I woke up from that surgery, what I, what I found out was that my left ovary from the egg retrieval procedure was like a water balloon with a million pinpricks in it. And that's from the retrieving of the many eggs that they do, but my left ovary didn't clot. And when they went in and they found that they sutured the ovary, they did not have to perform a hysterectomy, um, but they did have to go in very quickly in on my abdomen. And I have a very large scar from my belly button all the way down. And they had to go in and figure this out, suture it, um, figure out how they could keep as much blood inside of me as possible. And so when I woke up from that procedure, I went from being someone who was go, go, go all day long. I was a professor at a university. I was writing all the time. I was teaching at another writing center at night and I woke up and I couldn't walk. I mean, my abdomen muscles were just split in half and I was completely distraught. I couldn't drive. And then on top of it, of course, they told us we had to wait multiple months to try to get pregnant again. That experience I write about in my memoir of this much, I'm sure that it felt like everything that I had been harboring and was sad about it was like it opened up in that surgery. It was like everything that I had ever felt and try to repress and hold down was exposed and it was out and I couldn't go back to living the way that I was living. I was processing well, all of the emotions of being away from my family. I was processing what it was like to be a new wife. I was processing what it was like to um, juggle many jobs as, as a new professor. I, I had adjuncted for a while and what that is like and how taxing that is and trying to find time for my writing. And it was like everything that I ever needed to process, childhood wounds and traumas, it was like all there. And so we went through a great repair process and we tried a few, a couple more times to go the IVF route and each time something happened or it didn't take. And then on my birthday, a few days later, I realized that I was late, but I had taken so many pregnancy tests over the past two years of trying. And I thought, here I go. I'm going to take yet another one that's going to be negative. And we hadn't done a recent IVF procedure at that time. And so I was like, well, this can't be, but I'm late for some reason. And I took the test and it was positive for the first time ever. (laughs) And I didn't even know what I was looking at. I was in complete shock and complete surprise. I went to the store. I think I bought like 12 pregnancy tests. (laughs) I had to buy the ones that physically say pregnant because I was like, am I reading the two lines wrong? Which one is this one? We found out we were pregnant with our son, Gio who is now nine years old. So it was the great joy and gift of our lives to somehow get pregnant naturally. And yet I also am always a little 
um, hesitant to share that story because when I was going through IVF, every time I heard someone say, just relax and it'll happen naturally, or, oh, I know someone who tried for years and years. And then finally, when they stopped trying, they got pregnant. And I used to think, oh, good for them. (laughs) So just know if you're out there listening and you're in the, this trying, trying process Um, I understand your pain. It is such a lonely battle. Infertility is, um, and so many times I just wished that someone would just hug me and kind of say nothing. So, uh, just know I'm giving you out there like a, a a telepathic hug (laughs) and saying nothing (laughs) right now, if you're going through that. As you mentioned, this experience was the inspiration for your memoir of This Much, I'm Sure. And you started writing that back before Gio was born. What was the process like for you and how did that change in the first year of Gio's life? So I was a fiction writer before then. I had gone to get my MFA in creative writing, but I mostly took fiction classes and wrote fiction. I didn't really think that my stories, personal stories were anything that exciting to share. And so I would write this very thinly veiled fiction most of the time. And um, I graduated, I I moved to Massachusetts. I was still working on a novel. And then all of this IVF stuff happened and it was all I could write about. Uh, I journaled about it constantly. I, I couldn't not write about it. And yet I thought it was mostly for me. I thought it was just for my own processing. During the healing, like after I had that life-threatening situation and we had to wait to try IVF again, I did something that I had never done, which is I went on a writing retreat in Guatemala, more like swimming in this beautiful water. It was so healing. And the retreat leader said to me, I've been hearing you talk about what you went through. I think you should write about the the children that you imagine. Because every time we would go through IVF, I would envision the children that could be. It felt so odd to envision that when I wasn't pregnant, I, I was like, am I the only one who does this that imagines what our kids would be like or could be like? And especially when we're going through something that at the time feels kind of very scientific, right? With IVF, sometimes it can feel very formulaic. We're going to do this at this time with this procedure. And I needed something that felt real and I needed something that felt tactile. So I would envision our potential children and I would name them and I would see them in my mind. And I wrote about that in my journal, shared it with the group and the, and the instructor said, I want you to write more about those babies. And so I went home and I did, and I wrote this essay and Pink Magazine was having a parenting issue and they had an open call for submissions. And I thought, well, this is basically, I'm writing about not being a parent, but wanting desperately to become a parent. And so I submitted that um, essay, just like, I don't even know how this is going to be received. Will they think I'm weird? And to my surprise, there was great interest in that essay. And they said pretty quickly, we'd like to publish it. And 
when it was published, I started getting responses in ways that I never got for my fiction writing and people were connecting and saying, thank you for, for writing and sharing. And it also felt scary. It felt very exposing and raw and vulnerable in a way that sharing my fiction didn't. And I was like, oh, what am I doing? It was kind of strange, but I was, I was like, okay, well, clearly this needs to be written about. So I just kept writing and writing and writing about it. When I was six months pregnant, I went to the AWP conference, which happened to be in Boston. We were living in Massachusetts and I just went, I had no plans on networking. I was just, I I didn't even know the schedule. I didn't know who the keynote was. I was like, I'm just going to show up. And I literally showed up and I had just really popped at that time. So I'm like very clearly pregnant. One of the few pregnant people there walking around at one point, I had a bag of pretzels on my belly. Like I was using my belly as a table and I was just eating. Like I I couldn't care less. Everybody else was kind of schmoozing and I was just like eating pretzels, walking around. I ended up talking to some editors about my writing just naturally, organically, And a couple of them, when I mentioned that I had written this article for Pink, said, well, is there more there? And I said, yeah, I I think it's becoming a book. A couple of editors said, well, send your proposal along. And I said, sure, even though I had not written a proposal. And then like two weeks later, it was my spring break from teaching at the university. It was March. And I got every book there was about writing book proposals. And I wrote a proposal that week and sent it to both editors. And one said, no, thank you. And the other one said, we'd like to publish your book. And how long do you need to complete it? And I naively said one year, (laughs) forgetting that I was having a child and might need to take care of said child over the course of the next year and work full time somehow. Like, yes, I'll also write a book. I am so glad though that I signed that contract because it kept me accountable because probably that year I would not have written anything, but instead we had geo and we also moved cross country back to Chicago and I was working and I somehow wrote, wrote the first draft of the book, a very messy draft. I'm not saying it was any good at that point, but, um, but it at least kept me accountable to write. And so what did writing look like before he was born and after? Before it was Saturdays, long Saturdays at coffee shops, like this beautiful, just kind of like, all right, but I'll take forever doing it. And then once he was born, it was like, okay, talking to my husband, you watch him for two hours. I'm going to go to the coffee shop write frantically, use every second, then I'll come back. And then you could go do that thing that you need to do. It was just like a a tag, (laughs) you're it. And I used every minute of every moment of that time away to just write. But it also gave me the freedom to just get words on the page and not feel too precious about it. During Gio's infancy, I had carried him around our Massachusetts home like a football, his belly resting on my forearm. In that position, he didn't cry. In that position, he fell asleep, content. He was always attached to me, nursing from me, rocking in my lap. At night, I sat in the glider under the skylight in his tiny nursery, and I sang, you are my sunshine over and over 
until his eyes grew heavy. As the months passed, other things grew heavy too. His chunky limbs and my mood weighed down by the overwhelm and loneliness of raising a newborn without a village. As a means of efficiency, I bought a baby Bjorn so I could be hands-free and do dishes while bouncing Geo to sleep. Then just after his first birthday, we moved to Chicago. Geo learned to walk, but it took him an eternity to descend the stairs of our third floor apartment in Ravenswood. So to save time, I carried him. Every morning as we were rush, rush, rushing, I struggled down the steps with my work bag on one arm and Geo in the other. Usually I would strain to keep him on my hip and I'd say, you're heavy, buddy. I said it so much that one day when we were approaching the landing, Geo said, heavy. I stopped in the middle of the stairwell. His tone had reflected the same frustration I used when I said, you're heavy, as if he were a burden something unwieldy to carry. The stairs were a burden. The pace of life was a burden. But he, my beautiful son, was not a burden. I never wanted him to think that. I stopped saying heavy when I carried him. The pandemic invited you and your family to reassess everything. So you and your family packed up your home and traveled around the country in an Airstream for a while. And if there's one thing that I have learned about writing from you, it's the importance of organization, discipline, scheduling, ritual. How did you maintain your writing practice during this period of transformation? Oh, goodness. Um, So when the pandemic hit, we were living in Northern Illinois and we both went remote and then our son was in remote school. And so we thought this is the time to, to go and have experiential learning together as a family. And also we might not ever get this opportunity again, where we can be on the road. And we had had on our dream list for over a decade that we wanted to get a camper and go on the road. I had these grandiose visions, kind of like I did when I signed that contract when I was pregnant (laughs) with our son, like, oh, it'll be like regular life just on the road, but it'll be even dreamier. I will just set up a hammock at whatever campsite and I'll write long entries in my journal uh, as the birds chirp around me and it will be so idyllic. And what it was really like was three people, two dogs and a beta fish in 27 feet. And it was, oh my God, I have no space. My head has no space. I can't even think a clear thought. How am I ever going to get any writing done? I had to change quickly and go, how am I going to get anything done? So we would find a local library And I would find a couple days within the week of wherever we were. And I would lock myself in a study room at a library and get as much done in terms of writing and podcasting and email as I possibly could. And it was like those two hour hour chunks that I used to have in Geo's infancy where it's like, ready, set, go. 
get it all completely done and just do everything. The other time that I wrote too was um, when we would drive, we would have these five, six hour like drives from one place to another place. And so when we were doing those long drives, I would often have my laptop in the passenger seat and I would just type as much as I possibly could. And that's how my writing happened. But then also um, Gio and I kept a, a journal, a travel journal, and I would write little entries in there, much smaller than I envisioned they would be, but I would write little entries and then he would illustrate them. And so it at least captured some of the magic. And then the other thing that was happening is that I brought my podcast mic with me and I, I ditched all my ideas of keeping heart of the story. My podcast is this professional thing. And I was like, okay, here we are. All of us in the pickup truck, the dogs are right there in the carrier. The fish is right next to Geo. Okay, we have an hour, ready, set, go. And I would just plug in the mic and I'd be like, what do you think about what we've been doing? And we would storytell verbally. So my writing process became very much on the fly, verbal storytelling, writing quick notes in a journal, little sketches. And it really taught me that all of my rigidness and my rituals and routines, as much as I cling to them and I desperately love them, I also needed to release the grip a little bit. It's been a good lesson because life has been very different and I've had to be very flexible over the last couple of years, like we all have had to be. And so with your son, Gio, being nine now, you're starting to transition away from more of that interdependent, having a young kid time of parenthood and starting to see a little more autonomy from him and, and maturity. I was wondering if you could talk about how that's going and how at all it's affected your writing. We hang out now uh, rather than me constantly just kind of saving him from stumbling like a toddler into something dangerous. Now it's much more, we hang out and he is now, yeah, riding his bike down the block to go be by his buddies or running down the block to go have play dates and, and spending time outside where I don't totally know what he's doing, which is just maddening to me and really hard for me. Um, but it's a beautiful time. I We love hanging out with our son, which is it's such a, a gift to just watch him and see how he's similar to us, but very much his own person, his own unique soul and spirit. And yet it's amazing because he and I, the other day, we, we go on Mama Geo dates. So Wednesday afternoon typically is just us time. It's not it's not family time. It's just me and him. We always go to a library or a bookstore. Like that's our jam. And it, sometimes we also go for a treat at a coffee shop or something, but we always go to the library. That's like number one. And this is his choosing. And you can imagine the book nerd in me is just delighted by this. <laughs> that's, that's something I, I never even envisioned when I was pregnant with him that like one day you and your son are going to geek out completely over books and he'll love them as much as you do. And that will be like your shared thing that the two of you do and that he'll, he won't take to writing at first, but he'll take to comic drawing. And then that'll morph into storytelling 
it's like, what a dream and a gift. He'll come up to me and he'll just have these little comics that he draws. And his way of getting words on the page is by writing dialogue in the word bubbles. And he'll say, mom, I, I wrote another comic and he'll show me. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, listen, I'm not going to press you to love reading and writing, but the fact that you do innately is my dream come true. <laughs> and there I was at the bus stop every afternoon, smiling like crazy, waving frantically. When the door folded open, Gio would jump from the top step and leap into my arms, and I'd smother him with kisses. Then I would take his heavy backpack off, hold his hand, and we'd make our way to our house to sit on the front porch for a snack and interesting conversations. Under the shade of our river birch tree, as the birds chirped, Gio would say things like this. Do you know that dung beetles collect poop? I think we should cook minnows for Thanksgiving. Do dentists have teeth? How do turtles communicate? Mom, for your birthday, I'm going to give you a toy I don't play with anymore. Do you think that Sour Patch Kids taste like sausage? I have my humidifier on at night. How can I dream if I do? Mom, if you break your windshield, you should call 1-800-FELTCO. All the random conversations. Then one day we had an interesting spiritual conversation, completely initiated by him. Jamie and I don't subscribe to a particular religion, but we support all religions and we say thanks and we teach geo kindness to the earth and people. We believe that what you put out into the universe matters and that you can always ask the universe for help. So it was surprising when one day Geo asked me, Mom, what are angels? I paused for a second, thinking of the simplest explanation. I said, you know, buddy, I think they're invisible things that protect us. From what? He asked. From bad things, I said, afraid that I'd opened up a can of worms about all the horrible tragedies in the world, like abuse and crime. But he said, oh, like from cheetahs? Yeah, buddy, like from cheetahs. I said, laughing inside. And after snack and some downtime, Gio and I would go into the backyard and we would climb up into the ladder of our trampoline. We'd sit on the ledge and peel off our socks and shoes. Then he would unzip the netting and in we would go for a half hour of jumping. This ritual belonged to the two of us alone and even the placement of the trampoline in our yard felt intimate. Our tree created a canopy of shade so that the bouncy black mesh was cold under our feet. The lake and the willow trees were our backdrop. As soon as we'd climb in, we would begin a beautiful, sometimes silent dance between mother and son. We would leap in circles, weave in and out of each other's paths, then sweaty, panting, warmed up, we'd start to giggle. We'd squeal in delight, make our way to the middle, play popcorn. I'd bounce next to Gio and catapult him up into the air. We would do the splits mid-jump. We would do karate kicks and grab a rubber ball for a game of dodgeball. I would have his full attention and he would have mine. 
There were no toys or emails distracting us from each other. Then the smells of tacos would waft from the open kitchen window and Jamie would call out, dinner's ready. Gio and I would slow our steps. We'd gravitate towards the center, holding each other's hands for our favorite game where we would spin in circles with our eyes closed until we were laughing and dizzy. And then we would plop down, sighing and rolling onto our backs to take a one minute savasana on the mesh. I would point out the clouds above us and we'd listen to the bird chatter. But mentally, I was saying thank you to the universe for 30 minutes of joyful youth, 30 minutes of mindful jumping, 30 minutes of bliss, my beautiful boy. I wouldn't have traded any of those afternoons with Gio for time in my office. When I was pregnant, I was concerned about setting up support in the event that I would have postpartum. I just anticipated that it would happen. And what I didn't anticipate is postpartum anxiety. I anticipated postpartum depression, but not postpartum anxiety. I I actually didn't even know that was a thing. I very quickly discovered that it was a thing, though it was this unnamed thing of why am I so hypervigilant that I can't sit down? Why am I re-washing bottles that are clean? Why am I not present in my own body? It's like someone has kidnapped me and, and this other version of me is just seeing every possible thing that could harm my child. And I'm like octo mom, just trying to like prevent every possible danger from coming into this bubble around my son. And I found that it was really hard to be a person, uh, an individual, a partner, a friend, uh, anything, because like someone would be talking and I'd be like, yeah, I'm not like my, if my child is in the room and he's toddling around, I, I can't be here for you because I am just trying to keep this being safe. And so the fact that I realize now that I don't spend all of my waking moments trying to bubble protect him is a big shift. And also it has slightly morphed into all the other things. Like what will this kid say to him? What will he do when he's out riding his bike by himself or with his buddies? So it, it morphs, but I do want to just recognize that, that hypervigilance that that we have when our kids are born, it's a real thing. And it, it takes a lot of brain space. And the fact that there will be days when you will chill next to your own child is a damn miracle. <laughs> Can you tell us about your journaling practice and what role that plays in your writing life? Yeah, I have journaled forever. It is just this innate thing that I've done for a really long time. You know, I was, I grew up on the South side of Chicago and had these hardworking parents, but they weren't necessarily like uh, always emotionally talking about emotions all the time. And so when I was a preteen and going through all this angst and like writing really dark poetry and And closing myself up in my room, my mom came to me one day and she had this little notebook and she was like, so I just thought maybe you could like write some of your thoughts 
<laughs> this notebook and I had had diaries, but she was like, maybe just write some of your thoughts. So it, it kind of switched the idea in my head from, oh, a diary is a place where you record what you did. And now this is a notebook of where you could write about how you feel. And so I would, I would just start writing. And I mean, I have rubber made containers full of them dating all the way back. And, and I would just write my emotions, but over time, what the journal became for me was, was not only a place to process, but it became a witness. It was like somebody else watching what I was going through and acknowledging my own pain. And uh, there was this day in 2014, I'll never forget it. We were living in Ravenswood in Chicago, and I was waiting to hear back on a lot of really important news. And I was at Starbucks and I was supposed to be writing, but instead I, I mean, I was writing for my book, my memoir, I was supposed to be revising it. That was another thing. I was like, well, my publisher like this. And so I though took a break from that and I pulled out my journal and I started writing a letter and out of nowhere, I started writing these words and it was take a breath, mama, slow it down, honey. It's all going to be okay. And I started writing in this way and I was like, what is this? And it was like wiser me talking to present me, reassuring me that even though things were not okay, they were going to be okay. And it was as if this mama nurturer in me was taking my present hand and just like patting me on the back and basically saying like, they're there. Like, I see what's happening. I see what's going on. Yes, it's really hard and I'm here. And so I was just writing these words that were very consoling, very reassuring. And it's not like I was expecting myself to be a fortune teller of like, here's what's going to happen in the future. But the voice was just like, things may not work out with this. They will maybe work out with that. Regardless, you're going to be all right. You are going to be fine. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And by the time I got done writing the letter, I, I just, I was like looking up at the ceiling and I was like, where did this voice come from? And I reread it to myself and it was so reassuring that I felt instantly better. And I thought, whatever that is, I need to keep on doing more of that. So since 2014, for the last eight years, my journal has been a place that I write letters to myself from my wiser self. And I'm not the first person to do this. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert writes herself a letter from love every day and to love every day. Um, some people um, write letters to or from higher power. I just literally conjure my wiser self, the me who kind of has a good head on her shoulders or is six months out from whatever I'm going through an all-knowing presence or part of me that just is very reassuring, like a mama would be. And I just write from her to me. And I have a series of steps. Like first I write about whatever I'm going through and I acknowledge it. So it's like, oh, you're really hurting right now. I can see that. So I'm connecting with myself and then it'll be tapping into, I think right now your deepest knowing about this is you know, your deepest longing right now is, and I'm writing in the second person using you. 
And then sometimes I kind of clear out, here's what you need to let go of. You know, this isn't serving you right now. And I write that. And, and then it's like your next step is just not your next 30 steps, but your next step is, and I kind of write that. And then I'll write, I'm proud of you for, and I write something like that. And then I always write a really, really um, tender signature where it's just like, I'm here for you always, or you're going to be all right or whatever it is. And then I sign it and then I reread it to myself. And I always surprise myself, like, where did that come from? I don't know, but it feels so nurturing that it always feels really really, really good. And it's probably one of the biggest parts of my self-care practice. So while the journal has been a place where I write stories, I write grocery lists, it's also without a doubt the place that I write these kind of wise woman letters as I've come to call them. The journal can be such a place of respite, of nurturing, of homecoming for the soul, essentially. My journal is where I fall back in love with myself. That's what it's for, for me. What were your son's first words? (laughs) He always said that, that, that. It was his way of going, what's that? Tell me the word for it. We still will say to him, that, (laughs) that, that. So that, I think, was his first word. But of course, when he said Dada and mama, that was just heart melting, but no, it was death. <laughs> what was the first thing you said when you saw your son? He said, he's so beautiful. He had these eyes. He still does. They were so big, just staring at me. And I had an emergency C-section, so it was really traumatic. And I was still shaking from all the everything. And I couldn't hold him, which was so hard. And my husband came over. Somebody did. I think it was my husband. And he said, meet your son. And he was holding him. And Gio was so calm and so still. (laughs) And he swaddled like a burrito, but his eyes were so big. And he was just staring at me like this old soul. And I was just overcome with the beauty in his eyes. Like he was so wise. And I just kept saying, he's so beautiful. Oh, he's probably so sick of the smitten way I look at him. I'm just always like, oh. (laughs) So I said, he's so beautiful. Oh, I haven't thought about, well, I think about him all the time, but that moment, oh, that was a good one. (laughs) What are the first words of your current project? Take a breath, sweetheart. Slow it down, honey. It's all going to be okay. I wrote these words to myself on a summer afternoon in my early 30s when it felt like things were definitely not going to be okay. What is the first word that comes to mind when I say longing? Sunshine. Movement. Mm, Paddle. (laughs) Travel. Idaho. Sunshine. My heart. Home. Mm, Illness. Ritual. Candle. Beauty. Freckles. (laughs) That's fun. (laughs) 
You've been listening to First Words. You can find out more info on this episode's guest and the show on our website, firstwordspodcast.com. If this show resonated with you, please share it with other writer parents in your life. We're in this together. First Words is recorded, edited, and co-produced by James Helmer. Wasn't that a great conversation? There are such good hosts. I hope you enjoyed it. If there were any helpful takeaways, do us a favor and take a screenshot. Tag First Words. Tag me at Nadine Kenny Johnstone on Instagram and just tell us what your favorite takeaway was. It would mean the world to us to know and to hear from our listeners. And definitely check out First Words podcast. It's incredible. They have awesome authors on every month. Another writer who has an incredible podcast is my producer, Michelle Rado, who has the podcast called Daring to Tell, where she interviews writers and they share their true stories. It's a great podcast. You should check it out. Thank you, Michelle. And remember, everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. I'll see you back here in early 2023 with new interviews, big news, new essays. And in the meantime, over the next couple of weeks, I'll share with you some really helpful healing episodes to get you through the holidays.